where you and I can connect. It's a show that embraces a 360-degree look at womanhood. It's our voice, our perspective. It's what we care about, and it's how we feel. Empowerment through conversation is what it is. This is Full Circle. Family, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Full Circle. It is the Men on the Move series, and I am so grateful For all of the men who have said yes to this, the conversations have been amazing so far. Amazing conversation earlier today with Anthony Dewan and last week with Leon Guidry. Family, stay tuned. And if you miss any episode, make sure that you are following Miss Wanda's Full Circle Radio on your favorite podcasting platform so that you can hear all of the episodes. And even if you haven't missed it, if you just want to go back and get some more inspiration, it's all good, family. It's going to be on there forever and ever and ever. So thank you so much to my guest today, Ryan McClinton, friend to the show. You've already been on my show like several times. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I really enjoy having conversation with you, not only on the air, but off the air with you and your beautiful wife, Ebony, who I just adore. I adore you guys as a couple and as individuals. And I'd love to see two dope people come together and do amazing things in the world. The people that you are, genuinely, um, you know, I've been, you know, welcomed into your home. You guys are so welcoming and loving and kind and you ride hard for the Kings. So hey, that's, that's a mandatory. <laughs> that's mandatory. We, we born from the soil. We got to. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Ryan, it is a pleasure to have you back on the show and to have you as part of this series of full circle celebrating men that are uplifting the community in a variety of ways. I think I told you in the email, like you were one of the first people I was like, yes, I got to have Ryan on the show. And so I'm so glad that you said yes. I'm not going to belabor this any further. I want you to go ahead and introduce yourself to the Full Circle family. Yes, uh, honored to be here. My name, of course, is Ryan McClendon, as Ms. Wanda uh, laid out. I am a lifetime resident of Sacramento, California, born and raised in Valley High, very proudly say it with my chest. (laughs) I'm a community organizer, advocate, hopefully healer in a lot of respects, and just somebody who really does as much as I can, as often as I can, to really help uplift and liberate Black folks. Everybody, of course, because, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, but I'll start with us because often we're the group that's most um, forgotten, ignored, or not given the full weight of what we need. So I'll start there and we build out from there. But um, I'm honored to be a servant for our community and our people. And I would be remiss if I didn't uh, show the love right back to Miss Wanda holding this series and this conversational space and all the shows that she always do with Full Circle. Even the Full Circle part of bringing this conversation around men doing the work and how it looks and how it shows up and what our stories are behind it. Because I don't think that platform happens enough. I think it's happening, thankfully. Um, But it's not just that the platform happens, but it's the platform and what I like to call telling our stories from the healed perspective or a healing perspective, which often is what's missing, right? We know the trauma, we know the pain, but we often don't get to hear it from that healing perspective and what does that look like and how it reflects back. So for you having the, the willingness to open up your platform and have this very needed discussion, I'm eternally grateful for even considering me to be a panelist in this this dope lineup of speakers that you've had. But Really want to appreciate you supporting myself, my wife, of course, Ebony, queen of my life, who's really been been a game changer in um, my wellness and all that. And we'll talk about that for sure. But really want to appreciate you, too, for opening up your platform for so many needed discussions that our community really needs to hear in the way that you do it. So thank you so much, Queen, for doing this. Thank you. I appreciate that. Right back at you. You and I have something in common. We both grew up in South Sac. Very proud South Sac. I grew up in Meadowview. What up? Mm-hmm. What up, Meadowview? Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. mom's still there. Talk about the changes that you've seen in the community from growing up and and talk a little bit about your growing up, your background, and then what changes have you seen in the community, especially doing the work as a community organizer? Yeah. And big shout out to Meadowview. That's that's also one of the neighboring communities. I mean, if you grew up in South Sac, you got cousins all over and really got cousins all over Sacramento, but Valley High and Meadowview neighbors for forever and a day and uh, lots of love through all the years going through there. But I think when I think about the changes that I've seen, I think the most notable one is that there's a, 
I'd argue a louder community voice. And this is no shade to, you know, the elders and some of those who did this work well before me, because again, Metal View exists because of the panels, you know, saying, hey, we need a voice for our black, you know, class, our black tax brackets that we can represent ourselves, right? So you got to give a shout to the legacy work there. But I think the thing I can notice is that there's a much more vibrant um, and louder voice of like community standing up for itself and showing up in different ways, meeting that need, right? We often talk about be the change that you needed when you were younger. And I feel like that's happening in a different way because when I grew up, youth sports were the thing. It was Pop Warner football, the basketball leagues, uh, CYB and NJB and all these different smaller basketball leagues that were popped up all over here from brothers and sisters like you and myself who were just saying, you know what, we need something for these kids to do and a way to, to keep them out of things, but also bring families together. So it's shifted. I mean, that's still there. The youth leagues are still there on the live. Well, thank God that they're, they're doing their thing. But I think that there's a lot more community interest and a lot more avenues for community to participate in spaces that you didn't see them. Um, you know, big shout out to the Valley High Community Center that's right behind Countrywood. Growing up in the 90s and then, you know, the 80s, Countrywood was a dangerous place. There was a right. lot of violence around there, gun violence, gang violence. I mean, while some of those things still impact the South, I think it's very refreshing to see spaces like that reclaimed and that the same community that I grew up with is like, you know, we're going to do something different. We're going to give these kids something different. If it's from the culinary work that um, shout out to my brother Barry um, Axios did um, years back and still taps in with some of the schools nearby to the leadership work with the Simmons Center and all all types of folks lean into it. I think that's a big refreshing piece to see is that folks are really intentional to like, hey, let's go back to the neighborhoods that were often didn't have a lot of those programs focused on them and keep those things happening regularly. And I think it's a, a revitalization effort that's happening in South Sac that I at least am very proud of because it's that piece of, you know, the the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And we had to get real loud with our squeaks in South Sac to make sure that things started to change a little bit. And again, even over to Burbank and the great work that's happening there with folks like General Rhodes and so many folks I can name my bang and folks just list the name after name after name that are doing those pieces. But I feel like it's not just that it's happening, but the silos are finally being broken. And that's a big piece of it is that the silos are being broken down or finding ways to collaborate to really get these kids um, needs met and, and support as much as possible. But the families as well. Yeah, absolutely. Who were some of the men that you looked up to growing up? Oh, well, of course, my dad. Um, my dad is is first and foremost. Uh, he instilled in me um, a work ethic with integrity that, you know, to this day, I will always give Charles McClinton um, my namesake in many respects. I, I got full names because um, <laughs> my mom didn't want me to be the third. But <laughs> my dad was uh, big about that piece of like, you know, how do you show up for your family? Um, how do you show up for yourself? Um, Self-respect, dignity, being able to, you know, stand in your integrity of like, you know, if you did something, you did it and you need to stand on that right, wrong or indifferent. That was a choice you made. And you need to be accountable to those decisions. So um, military style upbringing. But my dad definitely is a, is literally the largest influence I've had over my life. Um, my godfather, Roy Gilkey, rest in peace. God rest his soul. Um, I think a lot of the older generation may know him because he was one of the first black chiefs in the state of California um, here locally. And uh, just, you know, a trailblazer in many respects there. And just how he always modeled what family was like and the family gatherings and the ways that we showed up were always big influences. And then from there, um, I'm kind of a, a, a learner by uh, voyeurism. I kind of observe a lot of people and just pick up little things here and there. Um, pick that tip up from a lot of athletes I grew up watching. <laughs> you know, uh, you hear the Emmett Smiths of the world talk about, oh, yeah, watch great players and how they do it and take something from them. Um, and because I didn't have a lot of direct mentors that, you know, coach me through things, um, life was a coach and being able to see how different people moved and what what things they applied and how they read rooms and some of those things were big. But again, my dad, I think it circles back to him because he taught me a lot of strategy of how to move around life of like, you know, keeping your eyes up and always looking people in the eye. Um, which transferred into different things where I'm able to connect with people differently. And I recognize like pragmatics and body language and can feel a person a little bit differently because I am comfortable looking at someone in the eye where I see nowadays it's not as common and that people yeah. kind of struggle with that. So that's yeah. definitely a big one. That's certainly true, especially with the, you know, of course, our yet younger generations being raised by television and social media and all the things and not having the skill set that we had to have, even the fact that we had to go outside and play until the streetlights came on. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Come> on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even that that community and, and building friends in that way and being able to, you know, express yourself. And I, I just, it breaks my heart to see generations or hear people 
talk about their children in a way that they can't relate to them, that they don't even have the skills to, to, you know, do some of the basic things, not saying that they're not capable, but they haven't learned the same things in the same ways that we have in communicating in, you know, speaking to someone in the eye or just taking initiative because they're so busy being buried behind a screen that they can't interact with people. And so that's one of the things that really like breaks my heart about these generations that are coming up is that I wish that, you know, and, and some of their parents have grown up the same way too. So it's like, how do you break that cycle of pulling them out of that shell, out of that environment so they can get active in these sports and community and things like that and just have that because that also builds your self-confidence, Come on, right? You can't have confidence if you d- haven't experienced anything to help build that up. Mm-hmm. And I think a, bar- a part of that is one of the things I've been looking at, because that same heartbreak happens to me. And I just constantly look at it. I look at it, you know, my own family and just friends and, and the like. And I think one of the things that I see is an under-acknowledged aspect of like why that happened is we are a culture of overcorrection. We come out of a generation where the statement kids are seen, not heard was a prevalent thing. Like that was the norm, right? Um, When you're around adults, you better not speak out of turn unless you were invited into the conversation. Even then you better be mindful of what you say in that conversation because, you know, there could be some backlash where a lot of us felt silenced and unheard. We're like, okay, well, what I'm not going to do is silence my child from having that space, right? So we'll share directly with one another. But the thing is, we insulated them differently. Give them a protective bubble where it's like, okay, well, you can talk as freely and as openly here and on phones and digital devices and whatnot, where you can actually message it out. But that soft skill of actually doing so with other people mm-hmm. and strangers to a large degree, that was kind of lost in that bubble of, of overcorrection of like, hey, we're going to share everything we can. And we're going to be the protectors that, you know, if we're in a shared space, hold on, don't like, I'm still giving you that protection of a parent should. But it's now that piece of, well, did you do a disservice to that young person? Because that young person actually does have something that's very valuable to the conversation because here's the other part of overcorrection, right? We all want to give our kids a better life and better opportunities than what we had, which also means that our kids should be able to teach us earlier than we were able to teach our elders, right? Even at ages of adolescence, teenagers, and so on and so forth. So if we're keeping them from that experience of being able to share that voice in those critical moments and being able to coach or kind of walk alongside Versus the straight protector, like, hey, I'm mama bear, I'm papa bear. We need to keep that energy to where people feel it. Also give them the space and make sure that we, we create the space where that younger voice can come in and inform so much. Because I think that's the rub, right? Like, even with my dad, like, there's things where I think back and like, man, it would have been great if I would have the ability to say what I was thinking. But mm-hmm. the way I was raised, uh-uh, you bet not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you bet not. And I realized as I got older, some of the times where I would kind of push a little bit more, and it was years as I got older in my teenage years versus, you know, those younger years, there was dividends that came on the other end of it. It's like, man, what does that look like current day if we had that that ability to just pull back a little bit on some of the overcorrection and give space for some of that to happen to where our kids are still encouraged with that piece of engaging outside of digital devices and being out in spaces and whatnot, where we got real protective because we knew the harms that were out there that were unseen. And we're like, you know what, what I'm not going to do is expose my babies to something that I unfortunately was exposed to. And while there's some good that came out of it, the risk was so much higher than, you know, the reward sometimes that we felt that we kind of just cut that whole existence off for our kids. And now it's like that part of, they get this culture shock when they get into those adult age years. It's like, oh, I don't know how to do this thing. It's always interesting to kind of see. You know, one of the things I appreciate as you were talking, I was thinking about the relationship I have with my son. I moisturize. So when I tell you my son's age, you're going to be shocked. But (laughs) my son is 33. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. He'll be 33 in September. Let me not age him. My son's 32 right now. But one of the things I appreciate, especially over the last, I'd say 18 months is the conversations that we have. We have some very interesting and in-depth conversations. And I wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about being raised by your dad in a different era. What are those conversations with your father like now? You know, it's interesting. I think we continue to work at it. And I think I'm an effective communicator, or I can be an effective communicator because sometimes I'm not <laughs> as good as I'd like to be, mm-hmm. in large part because I wanted to learn how to dialogue with my dad differently, right? Because it was always that parent-child dynamic and just the way he was raised, there were conversations that we didn't have. And now where he's in his retirement and he's living life and, you know, he's always been a very charismatic, charming person the whole nine. That wasn't who I got to experience, you know, <laughs> coming up most days. You know, I mean, yeah. there'd be those times, of course, but 
So now where it's an adult and I remember having a great conversation with them. Gosh, I had to be probably mid to late 20s, maybe even early 30s. And I was like, you know, dad, um, because, you know, as parents, and I can understand this from his viewpoint, there's those things we want our kids to be able to do and live into. His was always, hey, get to college, get, get your degree. And I had a different route of development. Like I completely went off the beaten path and figured out my own way to develop. So oftentimes our conversations will always come back to, well, you should go back and get your degree. And I'm like, dad, I need you to understand. 27, man, that's not my path anymore. I've grown and developed. So instead of that being your only answer, how do we look at having conversations that are more open and I can kind of talk about my experience being a grown man navigating life to where you've done this already? Like you've done so much already. How can I pull on that? And he wasn't quite getting it, but shout out to a friend of mine, Chris Marshall, who gave me this skill that he said, even with his dad, he had that challenge. But one thing him and his dad could always talk about was baseball. And he was like, so when he explained to his dad, like, I need help learning how to hit in life. And he broke down the anatomy of like what a swing comes down to. Then his dad was like, oh, I get it. So I had to put in terms where my dad would connect with. And one of the things that he's always done, and he stopped once he, you know, retired from the state and whatnot, was he used to do uh, customized home painting. So he paint walls, interior, exterior, and all that. And I'd have to do it sometimes in the summer, hated it to death because <laughs> we were outside kids. I want to be outside mm-hmm. playing and selling in this hot house, trying to paint walls and whatnot. But when I shared with him, I was like, you know, dad, right now when I talk to you, it's like you constantly want to give me this hand paintbrush to paint these big walls. When you know that the speed and the efficiency of using a sprayer would be more effective, or sometimes you need a roller, right? You need to change it up a little bit. That's what I need in my dialogue is for you to understand that Sometimes this paintbrush ain't the best brush for the job and we need to shift our dialogue a little bit more. And that was a breakthrough conversation. She was like, oh, I hear what you've been asking me for. And, you know, again, it's still a work in progress, but that was the pivot point where it changed a little bit. I think what happens more so now, though, is that the conversations I definitely continue to try to have with my dad, I have with other men in my community around me. So that that chosen family, being surrounded by some great brothers and, and, and men across the board, not just black men, but brothers across the board who really support and give me that space of like, yo, this is how I experienced it vulnerably in a way that usually is very uncomfortable for us to talk about. And that I think helps navigate a lot of it differently and gives me tools to talk to even a younger generation to where be it my sons, my nephews, youngsters who I kind of got a mentor relationship with or just out there you know, in the community, I'm able to communicate with them a little bit more effectively because I've gotten to model and practice vulnerability with other men around me that help us navigate the pieces where it's hard for me to talk about this, or I can now open up because I learned and practiced that a little bit more. Yeah, I love that. How did you get into community organizing? (laughs) Well, that actually came from something I believed in about Sacramento that I felt was untapped and underappreciated. And to say this as quickly and efficiently as possible, between like, I want to say it was like 99 to like 2004, there was like a five-year period where Sacramento was rated the most diverse city in America. And that was confusing, but also affirming to what I saw in Valley High, because in Valley High, you don't just say Asian. You're very specific. You're Hmong, Vietnamese, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's very specific pieces of it. You say East Indian, you're talking about Sikh, um, Tanil, like the different aspects of it because the families hold their pride of their culture so, you know, so powerfully. So that made sense to me. What I didn't understand was, well, how are we the most diverse city in America, but we operate like we're a small town, like we're golf. That don't, the math yeah. ain't math on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that Sacramento, one, is very siloed. And two, there's this pressure cooker reality of it. So people would often say, I got to get out of SAC because it's too small. Everybody knows everybody and they won't let me be great. And they go to a bigger city and they thrive immediately. Like it's mm-hmm. like they land there and doors of opportunity just open up for them. And what would bother me is so many people who would leave would take a dump on the city, right? <laughs> and talk negatively yeah. about Sacramento. Like, oh, Sacramento's terrible. I hated it there. Da, 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 da. And cool enough, you have your experience. I'm not going to deny the experience that you had. But I need you to put some respect on what gave you what you have right now. The reason why you hit the ground running is because you learned something from that city and that pressure cooker environment. So seeing that happen to be the story of so many people, I was like, well, what happens if we pour that back into Sacramento? Because as I talked to friends who I graduated with and we're doing amazing things, be it producing BET award shows or breaking new artists or working in film industry, oftentimes what I'd hear in their story, like, when did you pick that path was there was an exposure that happened. And that exposure wasn't the same for everybody. So my piece of it was, how do we bring back, how do we pour back into the soil the good fruit that bore? So instead of leaving, because I was definitely looking towards moving to Atlanta at one point, and some family things happened that definitely changed my perspective a little bit. I was like, you know what, instead of leaving the nest like everybody else is, 
I want to pour back into the soil here. So let me learn what I need to learn. Let me develop what I need to develop and hopefully start enriching our soil by pouring back into it. Because thankfully, there'd be people who move to Sacramento and find, hey, this is a great place. It just needs some help. And they jump into the streets. And I love and appreciate every single one of these souls. But I'm like, well, what about the people who are from here doing that too? And what does that look like? So that's what ultimately led to it. I was like, hey, Valley High has a lot of dope people. And when I was going up, growing through Valley High High School, one of the things I noticed was there weren't a lot of representations of things that we could do other than working for the state, being a doctor, being a lawyer, being a teacher, being part of a business, not owning a business, but being a part of a business. And I'm like, well, that seems very limited of what we can do. And I want to see something different. So as I started hearing about all these other pieces, I was like, okay, well, we need to bring these stories back to these young kids growing up to see, yo, this is possible from Burbank, from Meadowview, from South Sac, from Elder Creek, from all these communities where you don't hear these larger than life stories come out of, but they're here. There's a lot of talented people that come from Sacramento and people are usually like, oh, they're from Sac? Huh, I didn't know that. Because that part of the story is kind of buried in the past. So that's really what led to it was me having the desire to do so. A sister of mine who also went to Valley, um, shout out Vanessa White. She's doing some film work now um, in the Vegas area, but she was like, hey, I need to connect you with a community organizer and as Black women usually do, right? Being the, um, the, the birth mothers of the movement, but also the caretakers of the movement and really the movement. Um, a sister of mine, Danielle Williams, who many folks in Sacramento uh, know some of her legacy work. I met with her at a, a Starbucks and she finessed me into being a community organizer and I didn't even know it, but I appreciate her for it. <laughs> and it's been on ever since. <laughs> ever since, absolutely. Family, we're going to take a quick break. Please stay here for more conversation. This is the Full Circle Men on the Move series with our guest, Ryan McClinton, community organizer. Keep it right here, family. We'll be right back after this. This is Full Circle. Like what you hear? Drop us a line at fullcircle975 at gmail.com. We're back, family. Thank you so much for staying with the program. This is Full Circle. I'm your host, Ms. Wanda. Having a wonderful conversation with my guest, Ryan McClinton, inside of the Men on the Move series. Ryan, I know when we were communicating, when I was scheduling you, you said you were working on something that was coming up. Can you share with us what you have in the works? Yeah, there's two things. So one I can definitely share more details about, and the other one is still in the oven cooking. Okay. A bit. I don't want the, the the cake to sink in. I think that's what happens. I'm not yeah. Cake, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, so one of the big ones, and it's something that I actually uh, started doing as a participant last year, doing more of a coaching and kind of facilitation role with this year is a space that a brother of mine, Brandon Sturdivant, created called Black Men's Maroon Space, and it is a to me, a game changer for Black men's healing and mental wellness and just healing from our traumas because it really focuses on body-based healing instead of how we process up in our heads around like how we experience different things. It really gets us in tune with our body to become aware of how we're responding to different circumstances and situations. And often by having that awareness, it gives us the power of, of having choice, which contrary to a lot of folks' belief, and it may sound controversial to some, but I know brothers will hear me when I say it, we don't often feel like we live a life where we have great choice. There's yeah. very few choices that are given, and usually they aren't often to our direct benefit. It's to the benefit of others. I often look at it as my life has been something to where I'm um, either a service or a, a, well, yeah, usually in service to somebody or for somebody else's profit. That's generally how my life has been experienced. Yet this somatics healing that we do, it really gives us a chance to like, how do you feel things? What is the sensation of actually feeling mm -hmm. things? Something that we often, Black men, often don't have a great amount of space to really navigate. And usually there's a pressure of, if you feel it, I need you to communicate it and I need you to move on it immediately where it's like, hey man, I need to just start at this first part of what does it even feel like the sensation of feeling? So usually about five feelings we get to experiences as men and Black men specifically. And what this space of Black men's maroon space is, it gives us the safety to really unpack our stories and really see how we're experiencing the world and navigate these pieces that come up in a safe environment to where we can actually ask the questions that often we might get, you know, looked at crazy or responded to, you know, aggressively because mm -hmm. we just don't know. And we're like, hey, I need to understand this. And in a lot of times it's really questions about ourselves and what's happening. So generous semantics, Black Men's Room Space, it's a year-long cohort where we have a couple of retreats that we do up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, um, about eight to ten brothers, sometimes a little bit more than that, where we're there for about three or four days. And we're literally just going through some rigorous exercises and practices and, and learnings to where we understand, like, how are we experiencing the world? How are we interacting with it? And coming out of there, you're now experiencing life so much more differently where I can actually pause to be like, oh, let me do a body scan real quick. And be like, oh, my shoulders is a little tight to this, right? That means I'm a little bit more aggressive than I'd expect to, right? Or, or not necessarily aggressive, but I'm a little bit more 
tense in terms of wanting to respond in a particular way, right? We talk about the fight or flight response. Well, in somatics in the maroon space, we often talk about, well, it's a bit more than that, right? There's fight, flight, appease, dissonance, um, freeze. And there's another one I feel like that I'm missing. But when we recognize that there's these other responses that we have, it really gives us a chance to explore, okay, so why did I feel that? And now that I know that I felt that way, what do I want to do differently in response to that? Do I want to continue to respond the way that I've kind of conditioned myself to and how that kind of shows up? Or do I want to take a moment and say, you know what, this isn't for me and step back and have a right to say no to something and really do something different that is better for me, which in turn is really better for our families, right? In a similar way, when we say when a Black woman is well, the entire family unit is well, it's the same thing with the Black man. When we're healed and we're well, our families do better. So all the work that I'm committed to in community and showing up and organizing and trying to do these pieces to really get our healing better, when I'm healed, I'm able to do that that much more better, right? And so are my other brothers who are sons, fathers, uh, nephews, so many other pieces in our identities that we get to show up in our full selves and a healthier self where we're not feeling all these stressors that we can't name or, or unpack. So somebody be like, why are you having such a hard time? And you'll hear the response, I don't know. It's like, yeah, but you, you have to know something. I don't know because half the time we don't know where we're experiencing it at. So this space, Black Men's Room Space, really gives us a chance to unpack our experiences, learn where we're experiencing things. Um, and then on the back end of it, we get to do a bit of transformational travel where we went to Ghana for 10 days. Thanks. And when I tell you that was life-changing, sis, oh my mm. God. Like spiritually, mentally, emotionally, like there was so much that I felt come off of my shoulders. And uh, we literally, you know, we talk about breaking generational curses. That curse of, you know, going through the door of no return where our ancestors left and, you know, literally the brothers who we went with were all from California, born and raised out here, right? Never been to Ghana at all at that point. And the first thing we do when we got to Ghana was go back through the door of mm. no return, which is literally breaking that generational curse, right? We went back home and we got to start in, engaging in our cultural practices and whatnot. And every brother there had a spiritual experience that, you know, to their own of what they've been navigating really liberated them in a way. And now we're doing that work of like, okay, so how do we bring more brothers back and start park through those skill sets and take them through those same doors and come back and be able to give that back to our community. So that's one that I'm really excited about. I literally dedicated this year where I stepped back from a lot of projects. I said, I'm gonna focus on black men's healing. And this is a big part of that of like, how do we create more spaces where it becomes more of a cultural norm that we're talking about our mental health, our emotional health, our physical wellness, all these different pieces that really can contribute to us being the men that we needed to be in our communities and that we've been missing from for so long. I got goosebumps when you talked about that door of no return. I couldn't even imagine. And that's Ghana's someplace I haven't been, but I really have a strong desire to go. Mm-hmm. And I, oh man, just thinking about what that can do for someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, to walk back through that. Yeah, it's it's something that I, since I've gone, and honestly, before that, and again, shout out to my amazingly dope wife, Ebony, where we, we try to travel as much as we can. And we talked about like, you know, we spend money to go all types of places that we definitely want to see and experience. But it seems like the price tag is so much higher to go to African countries. So we were like, well, why not us focus on making sure that we make a trip there each year, right? And just save up the money that we have. And I can tell every single person who's listening to this radio show who has a thought, you owe it to yourself to go. And it feels beautiful that so many people I know in this Sacramento community have started making that trip. I just had um, another brother of mine who I hope gets a chance to be on the show, Keon Bliss. He's just came back from a trip to Ghana that he went through and connected with brothers that we met out there on our trip. Uh-huh. And it was like, yo, that was everything. It was a great commitment. A sister of mine who I grew up with, who's like a cousin, she just went on a bike tour with Black folks from down in Southern California where they did a bike tour around Ghana. They just got back and wow. it's just like, it's becoming so much more of a normal thing. And every single person I've talked to says, yo, I see the world differently because it is a different experience. And you owe it to yourself, Queen, to 100% make that trip. I'd say plan to go no less than 10 days. Give yourself more if you can, because there's so much to experience and there's so much history there that just processing it alone, like you need a day or two to just be like, wow, mm. because those slave dungeons, when I say like the spiritual movement is so surreal, like there's pictures I've showed friends. They're like, I don't recognize him. I was like, that's because spiritually I was in a whole other place. I seen and felt my ancestors. I smelt what they were going through. I, all those things were alive and like just thriving in a way where it's like, wow. and there's a piece of personal pride where it's like, and through everything they went through, I'm able to come back home 
and let them know the legacy continues and we're still fighting and pushing and, and finding ways to liberate ourselves. And to put it candidly, to, to feel what it's like to experience life from under the thumb of white supremacy and dominant culture is different. Like you literally just like, oh, wow. It took me three days to realize like, oh, that's the thing. That, that's, mm-hmm. that's this other part of peace that I never knew what it really felt like to be around my people and there's a joy and a love that you see, like, you know, on the stage, you say, what's up to somebody, a hi, you don't know what you're going to get back. You might get a, Hey, you might get right. a smile. You might get a frown. You might get a, like, what's up? Like a problem. Like there's a thousand ways you can go every single time. It didn't matter what a person was going through. If their face looked like they were stone cold, angry, looking through something. When you said hello to somebody, the brightest, warmest, welcoming smile would come and say, Hey, hello, how are you doing? And it was genuine. And it was like, oh my gosh, this feels so good. Just even getting that greeting from our folks and us having that connection there. Like, oh, so much. There's so much I can go into. Like Ghana can be a whole episode by itself, but I highly recommend anybody who's considering it, bite the bullet, save up, go. And it will be so much worth it. So worth it. That's inspiring, Ryan. I, I've heard many people say that too. Like it was like as soon as they they got off the plane, it's like a bird and lifted off of their that you know off their shoulders because you can just be yourself. You mm-hmm. don't have to look over your shoulder for nothing for no you know Alabama on the pier yeah, <laughs> kind of madness. On. You know what I mean? <laughs> just be yourself. And so yes, I definitely am putting that higher on the list of places to be. If I want to go to all these other places, Europe and everywhere, I need to go first to where I come from and learn my own history. So that's definitely moving up on the list of places to go. And I can say one more thing about Ghana, because there's a, there's still for a lot of us, especially if you're born and raised in the States, these myths of what Africa is, don't don't buy the hype. Don't buy the hype. There, We have amazingly beautiful beaches there, resorts, amazing food, like the food, like it's our food. It's seasoned. It's well, it's well done. It's well prepared. And yes, there's definitely challenges in the hard life over there too, but there's a sense of difference that you can see. Like there's literally an entire different way of living and a respect that they have for the earth and the ground and, and out there. Like one of the things I think historically that people just aren't in great connection with is that Ghana was called the Gold Coast for a long time. And it's called the Gold Coast because literally in the hills out there, you will see gold in the hills. And you think if anybody's having poverty, why would they just go take the gold? And But there's a reverence of the land and appreciation because the land gives them so much. Like where we see weeds out here, those are banana trees in Ghana. Like it's mm-hmm. luscious out there in a lot of areas and it's more vibrant than what a lot of people would make you believe. But yeah, it's, it's don't buy the hype. Ghana is a very beautiful place. And I'm sure other countries too. I had a chance to go to South Africa. That was amazing, different, very different from the Ghana experience. But to where you think about African countries, where it's like, oh, I don't know what it's like out there. And it's just crazy. No, don't, don't yeah. buy the hype. Yeah. Yeah. Because the media wants to show us a different, they don't want to show us the positive things of Africa and the, you know, the amazing people and and culture that's there. Because, you know, the more they can make Africa look downtrodden in their eyes, it makes them look better. Their culture look better. What, you know, just side note, I know you and your wife travel so much across the world, which I love so much. Besides Ghana, what's Mm -hmm. your next favorite destination? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, next favorite destination. Um, there's some that we're, we're looking to hopefully go to in the near future. But I think, yeah, Ghana for me, and there's a recency bias there, is, is at the top of the list. I really enjoyed Portugal. We got to go to Portugal, um, nice. Lisbon, Portugal, actually right before I went to Ghana. Um, it was a crazy turnaround and incredibly blessed to do it. Um, I don't know if my body would appreciate me doing something like that again, because it was literally about four weeks of travel. But yeah, we went to Portugal. And for me, I loved it just because one, it had all the elements that I like when I go to travel, right? Like it was right by the water. There's rich history, architecture and all those things. Amazing food. I'm a foodie, y'all. So y'all gonna hear me talk about food like it ain't nobody business, but it's amazing. But I think the other thing that I didn't know and shout out to a Sacramento Kings player to me is Keita because I think he was the first person I saw where I was like, oh, wait a minute. Usually when I hear people talk about being Portuguese, it's usually white people or white passing folks who are like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm Portuguese. I'm not white. I'm like, oh, okay, well, you, <laughs> okay. Fine. Um, but when I seen the Mia's Kata, I'm like, oh, that brother is is a dark skinned brother and he's clearly black. Like you you're not gonna mistaken that. And when I started looking into it, I was like, oh, we actually have a very large population of black folks in Portugal. So that was that felt comforting, you know, seeing a lot of diversity there. People were super friendly, very different from some of the experiences I've had in places like 
Paris and whatnot. But I'd say Portugal is probably pretty high on my list of places that we've been because from the people to the food to the culture, it was just a great energy. And I just really thoroughly enjoyed that, that setting and just felt at ease there. It's interesting you mentioned that good friend of mine, her family members left the U.S. and moved to Portugal about, it's been about three years now. And they love it. They said that they do have a nice black expat community there. They have lots of friends. They absolutely love it and would not come back for anything. And so when I told her the next time she goes, so that's the other thing on my list is Portugal. She she said it's absolutely beautiful, echoed all the things that you said. And so that's another place that I desire to go to. Why not see the world, right? I mean, and that's one of the things that I definitely appreciate. Like I've Throughout my life, I had different points of traveling, different distances. I think, you know, again, shout out to my amazing wife, where she she had a way of making international travel feel even more normal than it might have at different points. There are points where, you know, I've done some traveling. I have my passport and I was glad. I was like, okay, I'm out here collecting stamps. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but I think there's a way of embodying, like, we have a right to be, and I heard it on a a podcast recently where it's like, we're global citizens. We get to travel the world and see these places and see folks who look like us and these other experiences. And why not? I think one of the pieces that I'm big on, especially in this phase, and it goes back to the wellness part of it, right, is recognizing that I've grinded so much of my life and I work so hard. And as Black people, we always have this thing of we got to be five times better than the next person. Well, if we live in that our entire lifetime. That means we're living the workload of five lifetimes. That ain't yeah. cool. That's yeah. not sustainable, nor should our bodies and our minds and our energy be subjected to that. So just as hard as we've gone, we need to make sure that we pause, stop and rest and enjoy life to the side of it that we should. I was a kid that worked in a music store, the first music store I ever worked in, Sam Goody for some of the old heads who <laughs> remember that spot in Florham Mall. But <laughs> even as a kid, it was in my mind of like, you know, if I can connect with each person who comes in, listen to a different genre of music from a different part of the world, I can travel that much further, at least mentally, by hearing what they're experiencing and what sounds they're hearing and what they connect to that experience. So it's always been a big piece of it. But I think being in this adult age, it's like, yeah, we have a right to do that too. And as much as we can go to New York or Miami, it's just as possible to go to Lisbon, Portugal, right? It Actually, at one point, part of the reason why we went, it was cheaper to fly to Portugal and stay out there than it was to go to D.C. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And That's I mean, crazy. By far, like, I mean, like, saving literally about $1,500 easy on hotels and flight alone. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. All right. I've got my rapid fire questions I want to ask. Are you ready for the rapid Let's fire? Do Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. First question. What are you reading And or what book impacted your life? Yeah, so what I'm reading currently is Rest is Resistance by Tricia Hersey. Some of y'all may be familiar. She is the founder of the NAP Ministry. Shout out to the NAP Ministry and the Mm -hmm. great work of Recognize Break Apart from Grind Culture. Um, And also uh, Lyrics, Love, and Liberation by Asantua Boykin, a, a local legend around these parts. Beautiful book of poetry and just reflection that I keep on my desk and nearby. So uh, those are the two that have my attention most. I think I saw the first book you mentioned. Also, isn't that one of the books that Safe Black Space? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I it was introduced that to that book by Dr. Christie. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. it really is revolutionary, especially for black folks who are like, yo, again, that grind culture of like, we go so hard and we continue to tell ourselves we need to do this and we got to be top hustler. And it's like, yeah, we need to dispel that myth. And we need to embrace being able to take care of ourselves and rest and wellness and not be feeling like we have to be at an excellent level at all times because we're human beings, not human doings. We don't have to always do. Sometimes we need to just be and be able to experience life. Number two, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, uh, I think one, trust your inner voice and in asking the questions that you don't hear people asking. I definitely was somebody who had a lot of questions that I just sat in my mind and kept an internal score about. But I feel like what I've learned in my adult age was the more I asked those questions, the more people wanted to ask them too. But somebody wasn't, for whatever reason, um, didn't step into that and open up the opportunities for other things to happen. So definitely trust my, myself in asking those questions that are burning inside. What words of wisdom do you have to share with the next generation? Mm. Oh, uh You are up now. It's not up next. You're up now. But part of being up now is understanding how to listen, learn, and teach interchangeably. Because sometimes you need to be a student. Sometimes you need to be a teacher. 
And sometimes you just need to observe and really just take in the information that's being given to you because the perspective you have coming in is so fresh and vibrant and not tainted to where there's a part of experience that's going to come that also is very helpful. Don't discount what experience gives you. But when you pair the two together and have that intergenerational conversation, we all do so much better. So you're not up next. You're up now. I like that. I like that. If you could get one do-over, how would you use it? That's a very tough one because I try to live my, well, I don't try. I live my life in a way that recognizes everything that has happened is supposed to happen for what's to take place next. I think, I don't know if it could be one do-over, but the one do-over would be trusting myself to move on ideas and creativity when I did not. So you mentioned earlier, there's uh, something I'm cooking up. It's not quite ready yet, Mm -hmm. but that's my, this is one of my first attempts of fully trusting myself with an idea I've had that was 100% homegrown and really trusting the vulnerability of opening up to community. So I think that would be the thing is trusting myself to open up these ideas and see where they go. You know, the, the worst place they can go is nowhere because they never had a chance to live. Oh, I love that. What do you want your legacy to be? Mm, um, hopefully as a trailblazer and someone who inspired legacies of leadership. I don't need to be the person in the front at the helm or whatnot, um, but I'm not afraid to explore and try new things. And if that helps the next person who's going to take that thing 500 or 5,000 miles down the road, then so be it. And I'm happy for that. And I really hope to continue to be a light. If it's shining the light to help somebody else's light shine brighter, or just creating the path that we need to go down um, that we haven't been down yet, um, I'd be thrilled to have either or both of those as part of my legacy. That's beautiful. I want to circle back, usually the rapid fire at the end of the of the conversation, but I kind of sandwiched those in because I wanted to talk a little bit more about community. And one of the other places that I know you from, and I mentioned it just a moment ago, is Safe Black Space. Mm-hmm. Talk about your work being part of the Safe Black Space community. Yeah, it's it's truly an honor to be able to do that work um, with Dr. Christie, Dr. Tia Harrison, Dr. Marsha Hunt, Dr. Jacqueline Allison, Guy Allison, some of the names that are our current board, um, LaRue Pendleton, our board president, as well as some of the folks who helped us start it, right? Reverend Kevin Ross and uh, but Pastor Joy Johnson, who, you know, between her, myself, Rev Kev and Dr. Christie really kind of started off this journey of creating safe black space as a response to what our community needs were. It's been an honor to be a part of that and seeing it grow. I think when it first kind of fell into our lap of like a need that we were responding to, my role was different. I was a pure community organizer for nonprofit SAC Act at the time. And because of the workload that I had and whatnot, um, I couldn't lean in all the way that I wanted to, even though we were still taking part and trying to find ways to mobilize and hold these events for community, it opened doors for, again, my sister Tia to come in and take that thing in. Like I said, run with it a thousand miles down the road with the rest of our team. And I think just to see the evolution of how the pandemic happened and we shifted it to virtual and now we had people joining in from across the globe into where now it's a it's a sustaining organization that, you know, we're leading forward with Dr. Christie at the as our executive director and a, a strong board and a great volunteer village that I'm a great village. It's not even just a volunteer village at this point. This idea and the vision that I've had in my mind that I want to be a part of, of how do we have Black spaces for Black people that we've created and we're taking care of ourselves. And it feeds into so many other spaces that we're able to collaborate and work with others and provide that service to schools, to communities, to different spaces where Black people need a safe space to go. And I think it's really an honor to, to be a part of that community, to help find it with great leaders I mentioned before but also to see where it bridges into other things now. So Safe Black Space helped me see a way that we can build Black men's room space, right? So that legacy work continues and spawns off one another. And hopefully we continue to make fertile soil where we are our best and our first resource. Shout out Keon Johnson, my brother, who I've dialogued with that statement a lot, but also is connected to Safe Black Space, yours, mine, ours, be love, holistic, and a number of folks that have also been on the show, but um, great work that I hope everybody continues to tap in with and that we recognize like we have our resources available. We just need to be the ones to really celebrate, own, honor, and participate in. If someone out there is listening and wants to make a greater impact in their community, what advice would you give them? Mm, yes. So the first thing, and I think it's something that's not named enough, start with listening. Go to the part of the community that you want to impact most and listen. Don't come in with your ideas. Don't come in. I got a list of this is what needs to happen. Listen first. Listen to what's happening. Listen to what has happened. Listen to where things went right. Listen to where things went wrong. Ask questions to the person who's in the room who's not saying anything 
because likely they have a whole lot that they're holding back, right? That can inform ways that can be best helpful, right? Because when you listen, you can learn where the gaps exist and where the challenges are. And you can learn who's already doing the work. So you might not need to reinvent the wheel. You might just need to add a spoke to the wheel that's already turning. Um, And I think that's a great starting point that a lot of people undervalue. And also don't feel like you got to hit a home run off the bat. We shoot for the 500 foot shot when really we need a simple base knock. We need to go five feet in front of us. And that five feet in front of us opens up to the next 50 feet and so on and so forth. So don't feel like you got to start huge to make this big impact. Just start with what's right in front of you. And usually that starts with listening to understand what the problem and the challenge is and where you might be able to to provide assistance or even bring somebody else in that can provide assistance, right? Those are the things I think that are hugely undervalued, understated, and big impacts when we start there, because then we can recognize not only what we're able to do, but other resources that we come to the table because we're full human beings. We got a lot of experiences and a lot of knowledge that we carry. And that stuff plugs directly into some of those gap areas when we're able to listen to what's there and what the challenges are and be able to apply some of those solutions in the immediate steps in front of us. Great advice. What has been the biggest lesson in your career thus far? Uh, I'd have to argue right now, it's understanding the harmony of action, rest, and reflection. It's easy to respond, at least for me and for so many of us, to respond to the fire and go running towards Mm -hmm. the fire, like, how do we get this fire out? And then realize there's another fire, there's another fire, there's another emergency. And you get into this rapid pace of like running from fire to fire to fire, all the while forgetting yourself and forgetting your wellness. And what happens as you keep doing that, even though adrenaline's getting you there to run through it, you're not showing up as your best self going forward. And as such, your efforts aren't even giving the results that you want to see because you're not able to give everything that you want to give to it. So that need of having rest and understanding that there's a sustainability we need to have has been uber vital. I joked earlier about, you know, the grades and some of the white and the platinum I have on my beard and on my head. Um, but I recognize that that was the symptom of the stress and the trauma I was carrying. Mm. Right. Uh, when we talked about Obama, um, how he aged in those eight years in office, we didn't really acknowledge what we were acknowledging, which was the amount of trauma and stress that he was enduring and how that aged him so badly or challengingly because, you know, he still looks good and that's still the president. But I felt it. I seen it in real time. I'm like, whoa, I got to do something different. So learning that, learning to then find out about my boundaries and things that we don't often talk about and recognize as Black folks were huge lessons of like, oh, we have to do this differently. Because the last thing I'll say about it is that when I didn't pay attention to those things, and while, like I said, I'm comfortable being a leader from the front or from the back, there's always somebody who's watching your lead and following based on how you do things. And there are some dynamic community leaders to this day who are serving doing amazing work that I'm heartbroken to see that they struggle to slow down and take care of themselves because I modeled this, hey, we show up and we go hard, it's grind culture. And it's hard to ramp down from that when that's been your thing. It's a personal experience you have to have that informs you to slow down. So that would probably be the biggest piece is that harmony between action, rest, and reflection to really learn how do we apply doing things differently and grow from that, that space of what we just went through and experienced. How do you care for yourself? What acts of self-care do you put in place? Because that's really important. And you're absolutely right, is that we grind because we, you know, there are so many different reasons why we grind, right? We want to make a difference. We want to make an impact. We want to break generational curses by bringing, uh, you know, wealth and education and things Mm -hmm. like that into our family. But we also need to rest. Like you said, we also like, I just am coming off of a month, like I did this last month where I took a month off of the show Come on. last July because I was at a place where I was burnt out. I was completely burnt out. I didn't care about the job. I didn't care about nothing. I just was couldn't focus. And so I took the month of July off last year. And then I thought, you know, this is going to be a regular thing. So I just took this last July off and it has been amazing. I missed doing the show, but I didn't miss doing the show. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so for me, and I say my radical act of self-care during that time was I took social media off my phone. Come on. I didn't miss it. I wasn't checking for nothing. I just allowed myself to be for 30 days. And I did fun Mm -hmm. stuff. I went to concerts and had dinner with friends and things like that. But all of those things that are part of my typical every day, I set those aside. Mm -hmm. So how do you care? What do you do to care for yourself and and make sure that you can continue on doing the impactful work that you're doing because now you've taken that time to replenish yourself, however that looks. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful question. And I think the beautiful part in that question is that you gave the specifics of this next part that I'm about to say, which is self-care is a practice. 
It's not a destination. It's something that we have to continue to practice and try on different things and experiment with and navigate. Now, some find a routine that works best for them and shout out to you. I hope everybody can find that routine and lock into it. Uh, But for me, what I found is it's a practice of learning how I need to self-care for myself at different stages and phases, right? One piece is trying to stay away from burnout and being very aware of when I'm approaching that. And a thing that I learned with somebody who I hope at some point uh, gets to be our future mayor, I'm not, no, let me rephrase that. That is, yes. Our future mayor, (laughs) mayor, uh, Mayor Dr. Folajan Kofer, um, (laughs) I have talked about one of my great friends, is this piece of how do we operate below capacity? We often are so much operating at capacity or maxing ourselves at capacity. But the problem with being at capacity is if anything else happens, we don't have capacity to deal with that. If you get sick, things are thrown off. If your kid gets sick, if you have a family relative that goes to an emergency situation, if work gets upset or there's a a change there, all these life things that are going to happen, happen when you're at, at capacity, you don't have any ability to deal with it. So how do we get to the space of staying below capacity? So when those things come up, we can deal with them and deal with them in a healthy and a sustainable way. So what does that look like? It looks like taking time to, like you said, decompress from work, not just a couple days off, multiple Mondays off. Some of our, uh, our Caucasian brothers and sisters have mastered this art of having multiple Mondays off where it's not just one or two weeks off, but they have three or four. Because what happens, especially when you've been locked in the grind culture is it takes a few days, if not a full week, just to ramp down to where you could settle into resting and then actually resting for hopefully a week or two. And then that ramp back up because you know, when that clock comes up, now I got to get ready to go back to it. But when you're able to slowly ramp up to that, now you're coming back in again, below capacity and able to navigate things. And then it's about maintenance, right? So it's, a regular part of mine is the physical movement of walking every day, walking three to six miles. If I can get to get in six miles, I'll do that. The nutrition side of it, which I'm not as good about. I'm going to be honest with y'all. You know, I still love the sweets and all the things that are bad for me to eat, but balancing that out with healthier options, right? And putting vegetables and fruits and smoothies and things like that. Travel, as we've been talking about throughout the show, uh, we're big on travel. Anytime I can go, it's not just that I'm traveling. It's now the practice of also completely unplugging not just social media, but from work and all that stuff too. So I give myself space to breathe and dream, um, which comes back to some of the more localized things that I'll do, right? I incorporate naps. Absolutely. Let me get a good nap in the middle of the day. And I used to think, you know, that's some old folk stuff, but that's what aggressive <laughs> resistance is. Talks about that need to rest, literally just resting our bodies and our minds and whatnot, gives us something back to where we can be more creative and can lean into those things that we're not maxed out and stressing ourselves to the point of burnout that forces us to take a month off versus us choosing to take a month off. There's a big difference in that, right? The the doctor slowing you down saying you did this versus, hey, you know what? Before I do that, I'm going to go ahead and take this time off and know that you have this harmony again of how you're navigating your wellness is huge. So I think it's a practice. Me and my wife talk about it often. And even where we have some good, strong practices, gardening being one of them too, that's another good one. We often have to remind each other that like, hey, you forgot about the wellness piece for an extended amount of time here. And it's showing up in other ways. It could be getting short. You're not sleeping enough. Your body feels off. It could be a number of signs that the more you're aware of those, the more you can realize like, oh, I need to pause this. and I need to change something. Oh, this this ain't what I want to do. So now I'm actually using the power of my boundaries and say no to that and give myself a yes that actually does better for me. So that practice of just finding those different things and trying them on, seeing what works for you, right? What works for me might not work for the next person, but what works for you might actually be something I needed and I need to hear that. So Trying it on and talking about it with friends and loved ones to see what's working for them often are are good practices that help keep that self-care routine up and going. I love that. So true. I was just, as you were speaking, I was thinking about this time that I work for the state also, and I have all of these hours of vacation that, you know, they're like, you have to use so many, you can't carry so many hours over. And there used to be a time that my philosophy would be, if I'm not going anywhere, I don't want to take vacation. Like, I don't want to take mm-hmm. vacation just to sit at home. Now, I'll call in on a mental health day in a minute and just mm-hmm. be here, you know, breathing and, and just doing and being. And that, you know, I'm glad that I shifted that because that led to the burnout. I was never taking off because I was like, well, I'm not going anywhere. So why take off? I'm just going to keep working and working and working. And that led to the burnout. So yeah, that stuff is real. And I'm glad that you said recognizing it before you get there. Mm -hmm. So finding those things within yourself to realize that I'm a little off here. Like you said, not sleeping or, or being short with my friends or family or whatever it is, is important to tune into yourself in that way. 
And if I got one last piece about that too, because it's something important that you said, and this happens, I don't know a black person that this doesn't happen to, or has happened to, we will work so hard that we have this bank of hours and hours of vacation time. And often what we tell ourselves is I can't take a vacation. I can't afford to. They paid you literally yeah. to take the time off. You've earned that time off. You have a right to it, right? If it is an issue at your employer of actually taking the time that you banked off, that's another indicator of like, am I doing the things that are right for my wellness? Because if I'm in an environment that I've earned time off and I don't feel comfortable taking it and I'm not being encouraged to, do I really need to stay in that environment? And what is it given to me on the, the other end of my mental wellness and my emotional wellness? Yeah. So when we have that, and this is for every person listening to this radio show, if you have 60 plus hours of vacation, Take take a week off. Take two. If you got, if you're in the hundreds, I ain't you know gonna tell you how many hours I got. Like, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. That means you could take two to three months off. But I ain't, I ain't gonna be all in your business like that. But I am <laughs> gonna say, you owe it to yourself, your family, and everybody you care about to take that time for yourself. Even as Miss Wanda just said, if you do a staycation, right? I just got off of that. We had two weeks off. Thank God for my organization, Public Health Advocates, where they gave us a summer break. And most of that, I was here in Sacramento. We did do a, a quick trip with the kids to Universal Studios down in LA, but it felt great to wake up and not feel like I have to hop on a meeting and take these emails and, and just decompress and nap when I wanted to and snack and go on workouts and jog or whatever I wanted to do, being home, because I do enjoy my home. I'm, I'm, we, we work hard to have a home that we want to be in. Yeah. So why can't I enjoy it without the burden of having to work and feel like I got limited hours to enjoy this piece? Take that time. You earned it. You deserve it. And more so than anything, you deserve care and to be taken care of. So take care of yourself. Nobody's going to love you like you can love yourself. Absolutely. I know you're working on something that you can't share with at this time, but please know, you know, you can come back anytime, share whatever it is you want. I will share whatever it is you need me to share. But I also want to know beyond that, what's next for you? What do you see? What do you want for yourself? Yes, uh, I would love to continue on this trajectory where not just me, but those around me, self, everybody that I that I know, care for, and those I, I get to meet are able to own our value to where we don't have to be subjected to this grind culture that just extracts so much out of us and we don't get to enjoy life the way that we want to. I'm in a phase of life where I want to do purpose-driven work. Um, I don't want to have to do things for the sake of a, a dollar that ultimately is going to be spent and might not come back to my hand. But if I could use that dollar to empower five of my friends around me and we all can take one of these trips we've been talking about, that's where I want to be at. So really get into that space of where we own our value, where we're supporting our endeavors, our dreams, our hopes, our focuses, our projects with one another by literally owning the value of our skill sets that we carry. <laughs> my, my mom and my dad both work for the state and uh, they have a lot of skills that they give into the state for through their retirement age. And it's funny when I talk to my mom of like, you know, you're a procurement specialist, meaning that you have a knowledge around purchasing things and how to evaluate costs and all these other pieces that can be immensely helpful to a number of friends, myself included. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you know, I never thought about that. I'm like, and if it's easy for you, it might be a, a labor for me. So what does it look like for me instead of paying some company I don't know five hundred, five thousand dollars to do something? I can give you that same five hundred to two fifty or whatever. And now you're probably making more per hour than you ever did. And you did it to somebody you care about, somebody whose vision you want to see flourish, but you also got something back that gave you a sense of financial freedom or ability to move differently. So really living into that piece of like owning my value, but also helping others own their value so we can collaborate and get everything we need. Again, we are our first resource and our best resource. And when we understand how to leverage that and really show up for one another, man, some powerful stuff happens. That's where this extractive economy around us takes advantage of us, but we don't make sure that we build each other up with it and support each other to where we don't need that extractive economy to to drive us anymore. Great last words, Ryan. You know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm always excited to speak with you. And thank you again for saying yes to being on the show in the special series, honoring men just like you that are out here doing the work. And so I appreciate you so much. You know, you have an open door to come back anytime. Thank you, Queen. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for this great conversation. And I look forward to coming back. And anytime you need anything, please let me know. And I'll definitely bring some others in and whatever you need, just just let me know. And it's a yes. I got it. We got we got each other. Come on. Come on. <laughs> That's how we're doing it, family. Another episode of Men on the Move. 
in the books. This has been a great series. Make sure you're following Miss Wanda's Full Circle Radio on your favorite podcasting platform so you can hear all the episodes. This one will drop on Tuesday at noon. And make sure you're following, sharing the show, following us on social media, and telling your friends and family about Full Circle, not just here in Sacramento, but worldwide. You can always hear us on podcast or live through our live stream. This episode of Full Circle is brought to you by Be Love Holistic, the sponsors of K-Love the Poet Presents the Art of Sisterhood tour that's happening September 3rd at the Brick House Gallery. Get your tickets at klovethepoet.com. It is a day of sisterhood, of brunch, of fellowship, music, entertainment, and most importantly, again, sisterhood. So make sure you're getting your tickets today. Thank you to our sponsor, Be Love Holistic. Thank you so much for supporting us. That's how we're doing it. Show love to everyone you meet. And I'll see you next week. Peace. This has been Full Circle. Follow our Facebook page at Full Circle 97.5.